Hello, listeners. First things first, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we're really excited at the fact that uh, we're starting to get a, a great crowd of folks here listening to the podcast. Uh, it's it's our excuse to hang out with one another and talk about movies, debate certain topics, and so just really glad that you could all join us, so thank you. Uh, second off, this episode's going to be a little different than any of the formats we've done prior on the podcast. This is going to be a rewind. It was inspired by a virtual lecture that we all attended uh, that was put on by the Thomas Ford Library in Western Springs, Illinois, called Beyond Blues Brothers, at the 40th anniversary celebration of the Blues Brothers, talking about several things about the film. Uh, you'll hear in the episode that we focus mostly on the social implications of the film and complications of the film. We, we explored a lot of dimensions of those complications. I think at the end, we all pretty much agreed that it would have been better if the majority of the revenue that was generated by this film and other well-known uh, white blues artists could have been routed to the people who actually started the blues and made it an American art form, which was the, the black and African-American community. So to do our small part and put our money where our mouths are, uh, we inventoried how many times we saw the Blues Brothers collectively. I think it's around 30. And we took an average ticket price of about $10 and we're going to donate $300 to the Heart Fund. And the Heart Fund is for blues musicians and their families in financial need due to a broad range of health concerns. In addition, uh, we'll donate $10 for every download of this episode up to uh, a max donation of $2,000. And again, uh, we don't ask you to crowdfund this podcast. Um, we, we try not to ask much of our listeners. We just enjoy having you be a part of, of our group. Um, so it's that money's coming out of our pocket, but happy to do it, happy to donate it uh, for such a great cause. And we understand this is a small donation, um, but I think every little bit helps. And we really wanted to do something given uh, the topics that we discussed on the podcast and, and really show where we stand. So thanks everybody for listening. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to a very special episode of Lost and Found and Rewound. This is the episode where we confront Chris about his the the marijuana we found in his in his dresser drawer. We can't say that. It's a very special. Like sorry, I was trying to think of what a very special episode would be. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, I guess we could leave that in. Should I think of something else? This is this is the episode where we confront Chris about those magazines we found in the dresser drawer in his bedroom. They were um, gun and garden, <laughs> and there was a lot of questions. I was um, 
I was in a, uh, a doctor's office or actually in a vaccination office because I was going to India and I had to get shots to go to India. And I looked mm-hmm. down and there's a Gun and Garden magazine, which is a, a popular magazine in the South. And lo and behold, a friend of mine is on the cover in a wedding dress. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I've never, yeah, never seen that. It, so that that's, that's why I have the, those magazines in my <laughs> dresser drawer. <Okay. laughs> my friends are on the cover. <laughs> Very special episode. I am Chris Lost. Uh, I'm Found Jim. I'm Rick Rewound. <laughs> That's right, right? Yeah. We did it. We did <laughs> it. In the right order. And in the right order. And today we're going to do a debate. No, a discussion of the film Blues Brothers. I know, Rick, you, we, you've you alluded on previous episodes that you've got some things to say about Blues Brothers. Yeah, and I, I learned, was, learned a new word from that presentation we watched, which helped, uh, made me feel better that it came up in the presentation. Actually, if it's a word I'm thinking of, it was probably the best part of that presentation, the one that really actually changed my mind a little bit about the film. Neo-minstrelsy? Neo-minstrelsy. Neo minstrelsy. So there's minstrelsy, but then there's neo minstrelsy. I, the term I was using, which was my own term, but I'm sure other people have used it, which was uh, blues face, which is a more brutal evaluation. I didn't know that that um, was what they literally did to promote the film. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a that's an Annie. Uh, what's her Leibowitz photo? Like she's. She's terrible. I'm starting to think, you know, she's supposed to be great, but then reading about that, uh, I just read about uh, the Go-Go's photo from the cover of Rolling Stone and how unhappy they were about that. And that's Annie Leibovitz, too. Oh, I don't remember what that that picture was. It's them in their underwear. So basically you have the Go-Go's huge hit. They have a huge hit, all-women band, and then... They show up on Rolling Stone and they're in their underwear. So it's just basically like any progress completely eliminated by this photo. From the dark yet beautiful industrial landscape of Joliet, Illinois factories, Jake Blues emerges from uh, emerges angelically from glowing prison gates to join his brother Elwood on a comedic musical buddy chase picture involving nuns, Nazis, cops, country and western folks and a supporting cast of the greatest r&b stars of all time said to be on a mission from god the two recidivists schemed to save the orphanage they called home where they suffered unspeakable abuses at the hands of odd priests and the frustrated wives of the holy ghost the film culminates in a huge cavalcade of live music car chases and a reckoning with the man who would eventually kill any hope of a picture this weird getting a sizable budget steven spielberg jake and elwood get the band back together reconcile with princess leia save the orphanage and go to jail the end are there films where the criminals and people with a criminal background are the heroes and the police are simply buffoons and negative characters I I know that there are a lot, and this is because of the copaganda thing now, right, where there are a lot of policemen who break the rules and might have question be questionable, but that kind of bad guy, anti-hero, having a main character who's a criminal but still a positive character, 
like Joliet Jake. Is that does that even exist anymore? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's one of the biggest franchises in film history. Enlighten me. Fast and the Furious. Oh. Fast and the Furious. Okay. Yeah, I haven't watched those films. Okay, so that's that's kind of where the criminals are are the good guys. Yeah. In fact, uh, the other day I was feeling depressed. I watched Tokyo Drift because it was the one I had never seen, and it was actually awesome. It was a really fun mm-hmm. movie. But yeah, the in in those films, the good guys are all criminals, and they steal things. And I mean, eventually they've now turned them into superheroes because now they just save the world. They don't commit crimes anymore. Right. Right. But for the first five, they were criminals. car thieves. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's good to know. <laughs> we have a special guest with us today uh, who's joined 10 minutes too early, but we'll, we'll let him get his segment over with and we can move it around if we wish. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please, please welcome Thomas Lost, my son, Thomas Lost. <laughs> Thomas, can you say hello to everybody? Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. Hello. Thomas, we have you in for a, a segment. Hold on, I titled this segment. I want to make sure I get the right title. The youths of today offer thoughtful insights on the films of yesteryear and their relevance to the youths of today. And I'm, I'm wondering, the big bet is, will my son say more words than are in the title of the segment as we go through the segment? We'll see. <laughs> we will see. So, Thomas... We're three men in our 50s, and this film came out in 1985. When did this film come out? 80. 80, yeah. Oh, wow. Were you paying attention <laughs> to the presentation? I wasn't. Okay. I was paying attention to the guy who kept getting a beer out of his refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas and I were enjoying that. So 40 years ago, it's the 40th anniversary. Yeah. Maybe that's why she's doing the tour. Right. And I recently heard on a podcast, a, a, an amusement park podcast, these people criticizing Blues Brothers. They didn't understand the relevance of it. They, they didn't think the movie was entertaining. They were also, I think the, the impetus of the criticism was that Universal Studios Hollywood uses the Blues Brothers as like icons for their theme parks. And they're wondering, which I think is legit. I don't know why you would use the Blues Brothers as theme park walk around characters or anything like that. They're not, I don't know, maybe because they own the property, but, um, Mm -hmm. but they were basically trashing the blues brothers saying it wasn't relevant and it was only, uh, relevant to people more of our age. So Thomas, could you give us some comments on your thoughts on the blues brothers film and whether or not you found it poignant to you in your life? I thought it was funny. I had a good time watching it. I mean, what more can I say? It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) That might be it. That might be all the... Did you find it entertaining end-to-end? It was a long film. Yeah. Now, you have been um, trained by your mother to enjoy R&B music, unlike your friends and stuff who listen to, I don't know, K-pop, whatever music (laughs) they listen to. (laughs) Do you think that played? Do you think that came in as a factor that maybe you've been brainwashed to enjoy things of that ilk? Most likely. I mean, <laughs> there was a lot of that, so probably helped. What was your? What do you think the funniest part of that film was? 
Uh, I like when they got slapped around by the nun when they said <laughs> when they said the cuss words. That was pretty funny. <laughs> and when the Nazis drove off a bridge and then fell from seventy feet in the air, except much much higher than that actually, but still. All right, one last question. We'll let you go, Thomas. We uh, have a question on this podcast. Should this film be found? Meaning, because you saw this film on the big screen, right? Would When you went to school the next day, did you A, tell your friends that you actually saw this film, and B, would you have recommended it to your friends? Absolutely, on both. I have told my friends already to watch it. I thought it was great, and, and I'd want them to watch it too. They'd like it. Would you, uh, would you re-watch this film? Yeah, I'd watch it with them. All right. Guys, do you have any questions for Thomas before we cut him loose today? Did anything seem out of date or, you know, kind of offensive about the movie, though? Was there anything you remember that, like, the other direction? Um, I mean, the lady in the, uh, the lecture brought up a couple points about that, but mostly I agree, but I don't find it offensive enough that it shouldn't be enjoyed as a fun movie. I don't see the harm in that, at least. And if you watch the extended cut, she had a point about how the R&B legends aren't in it for even five minutes. But if you watch the extended cut, they have full-on, complete musical numbers that last a good, a good amount of the film. Great. And they're, they're in a large portion. And I think they get more a, a good amount of screen time. So, Great. Yeah. Okay. Good job, boy. You did your papa proud. You can go back to video gaming now. <laughs> All right. See ya. See ya. Thank Thanks. you. So shoot, let's get into the the neo minstrelsy of the film. I thought part of the joke was that two white men were posing as legit blue stars. Like I thought that was the punchline. You would never take two white goofballs seriously. And that the counterpoint to why you wouldn't is they featured James Brown and Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles mm -hmm. to show you what real R&B and blues artists were like. And that, you know, they, the, cut, the comedic portion of it was their music, whereas the real, their tribute or they were using sort of their comedic prowess to then raise up and legitimately, seriously feature R&B artists. That's how I felt before the lecture last night. Right, yeah, it's kind of like like they're the uh, they're just another element, kind of absurdist element. Not quite absurd, but like parts of the movie are crazy and completely absurd, and so they're a bit, it's kind of, jar not jarring, but yeah, it is strange. It's like these two kind of, you don't really buy them being flutes. They're they're playing it straight, like serious, like they're really these blues musicians and, you know, Jake's been in prison and even though in reality they don't seem, they're not like that, it doesn't seem like they, you know, that they're that street and everything or it's kind of a, it's all, it's a cartoon almost, they're cartoonish. So I can kind of see that, how it's sort of, it's so separated from reality, the whole movie in a way, but. Yeah, that, that's the joke. That they're right. blues guys. So yeah. my problem is, is I remember the Blues Brothers before the movie came out. And so that record, Briefcase mm -hmm. of Blues, being on the radio constantly in Chicago, being 
the best-selling blues album of all time. I don't think it was a joke record like right. the Great White North record, right? Bob and Doug. It wasn't like King Tut by <laughs> Steve Martin. So I'm trying to think of other records like that that were by comedians. It wasn't like the Animal Stories compendiums. Right, Animal Stories wasn't like Steve Dahl and uh, the Insane Coho Lips. What was it called? Um, fish sticks, something fish sticks, right? Uh, oh yeah. Th- it was it was a record with Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn, and um, is the is it the drummer from Booker T and the MGs? I don't think it is playing R and B, blues classics, being sung by a couple white guys, one of whom is a Chicago guy, who probably was not ignorant of the Paul Butterfield blues band and Mike. Uh, Bloomfield wasn't ignorant of kind of that that whole genesis in the late 60s of sort of the white co-opting of mm-hmm. the blues. Right. So, or Elvis. Or, or Elvis, right, yeah, yeah. But but what I'm saying is, is that I, I feel like it's a little, I, I understand the motivation of these guys, but it is also actors hanging out at a bar doing blues tunes with their coked up friends and then them turning it into a set of characters. Very very successful. Well, yeah, they made a lot of money off of it. A huge amount of money off of it. I think it's revisionist to see it as that. To see it as the way I just described it? Yeah, I think that's revisionist. I think it's making excuses. And that's why the neo-minstrelsy idea or blues face idea really starting to bother me about it the more I watch the movie because I love the movie. And we've said before, Jim and I, you know, this was the first R-rated movie we saw, so it was very exciting. It was a Chicago film, so you heard about it before it came out. You, it was, it was really probably one of the earliest memories I have of, you know, sort of connecting the what's behind the scenes with what's happening. You know, having some kind of connection, right? That obsession. I guess we probably all share because we're doing this podcast, right? <laughs> about about more than just the movie itself, right? And so it definitely has a very close place in my heart for so many reasons. But then if I look at it now and I even, yeah, think about my feeling about what was going on with the blues in Chicago in the 80s, it, it, it does worry me a bit because it does seem like co-opting. It seems like, so the idea of neo-minstrelsy is that idea of it's not, they're not doing blackface or anything like that, but they're kind of basically doing all the same things <laughs> that you would in a blackface performance without that last step right right yeah i mean in the the other thing is it's a love letter to the city of chicago which we all grew up near um and it featured many of the places that we kind of went to when we were kids like daily plaza i remember walking around daily plaza and i actually was downtown with my mom when they were shooting the cop car chase scene and one of the mm-hmm. things i noticed actually last night watching the, the cop car pile up underneath the l train was that's actually right where I get my peanut butter power smoothie from the Equinox gym every day that I'm in downtown Chicago. So um, it's just exciting when you, I remember walking around, not to tangent too much, but I remember walking around the streets of Los Angeles and thinking to myself, why am I so invigorated? Why am I so full of energy? And I had the same feeling walking around the streets of New York. And it was because I was seeing all of these places where these films were shot. And uh, the, and I didn't even realize it. I was like walking by scenes that I had watched on film and didn't even 
notice. So seeing your hometown in a film was exciting. But I will say my heart, I was ready to sort of have a, a educational conversation or a, uh, an intelligent conversation about... Appropriation. What appropriation. And I was ready to talk about, you know, is appropriation in music and the line, should there be lines drawn between black and white? But then when she brought up that term, neo-minstrelsy, defined it, and then walked us through the points that really, particularly the the photograph, the Leibowitz photograph, my heart just dropped into my stomach. And I was like, well, there's no, there's no defending this film. And I, I guess what I came to was maybe we should say that things like this can still be enjoyed as long as they're coupled with an intelligent conversation about them. I don't know what the answer is because I'm not a big fan of saying we can't watch it anymore or people can't enjoy it anymore. I don't know. What and, are your thoughts there? I, yeah, and, and I'm going to argue the other side, which is that, yeah, providing... I mean, it's great to see James Brown, you know, shot in a full kind of Hollywood production. You know, Ray Charles. Any, any of those people, any of those musicians, you know, that's, that's the beautiful part of it. So I also understand that... They're basically, it's, it's the question, I, and I think this, is, this goes into what we're struggling with now, which is that idea of white supremacy. It's like, well, what do you do if you want to be an ally? You use your power to elevate you know, people that um, you believe have been overlooked. And so you can make the argument that they were, these guys, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, were just taking their fame and using it to promote these artists that had a huge influence on them. And then on top of it, it is the cycle. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, that is, that's why I like music is because it is a powerful thing that breaks down cultural boundaries, right? That, I mean, you can argue just as much about how powerful, um, you know, radio and blues and R&B and rock and roll, how, how important those were also, you know, for making... Uh, civil rights a reality besides just the civil rights pioneers, right? You have cultural ways of people breaking down barriers too. And so I believe that. And I believe that's what, you know, that's a powerful part of music is that you can bridge all of these divides with music. So I feel bad condemning it too, because I, I understand the other side of it. It's, it does also feel it's not as bad as Gone with the Wind, but it's also 50 years <laughs> younger, right? 50, 40 years younger, right? So it's, it's, it's 40 years newer than that. So in 40 more years, will Blues Brothers be completely unwatchable? Probably, right? Or it will be cut up with just the music performances from the, uh, the blues artists, right? As opposed to the Blues Brothers themselves performing. Is that the answer, though? Is to just never watch the film again? Or to just edit out? I mean, like, I can see why I'll never... I've never seen Birth of a Nation, and I know I'll never watch it, right? Um, I get how the line is f firmly drawn there. Um, but is Blues Brothers on the Birth of a Nation side of the line? I, I don't think so. I've seen Birth of a Nation. I've seen Triumph of the Will, because I've taken those film classes where they make you watch those films. And it's... You, and 
you know, watching anim, you know, have taken animation classes and showing you all the Warner Brothers cartoons that have, you know, been, uh, you know, taken out of circulation, Disney stuff, you know, and and Song of the South, right? So it it's I, I guess there's the academic approach, and then there's just the entertainment approach, right? So I don't think you eliminate it completely, but you also don't let it exist without context. Is it is it healthy to erase the mistakes? Or is it healthier to apologize for them and let them stand? Or is it apologize and erase? Are you leading? I, I feel like this is a trap to then say, if I say no, and then you say, well, why shouldn't we, why should we not preserve this, the Confederate statues? I feel like a trap. Oh, no. This is the no, kind of trap look. I would lay for someone. No, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm just asking questions. Look, there's, there's no... I. I I have no right to stand on any other side but to say, you know, we need to, we need to, you know, the, I think the the problem with this podcast in specifically is it's three white men in their 50s and then one white boy in his teens commenting on something that didn't, didn't, um, didn't offend us personally or, or I, I mean, offended us personally, but didn't offend us because of our race, Right. And so, um, you know, that, so I'm, so I'm, so I'd say our only option here is to say that this, that the, you know, the people who should comment on whether or not this film should be canceled are the people who would be most offended by it, which, which I would think would be African Americans or blacks because of the neo minstrelsy aspects of it. Right. Um, so I'm not trying to lead you into, to, to defending this film. Like I said, my heart sank. I felt like it was sort of undefendable after she made those points. I'm just, I'm just opening the conversation to, you know, it, it, it's weird because it feels like there's no room for philosophy in these discussions anymore. It feels like we have to be Boolean in them um, because of the outrage. And it feels like this is the time that we have to be Boolean and that maybe we will evolve to a point to where we can all um, put things in context and then go back to uh, watching them, even enjoying them. But we are so far from the pain that um, underlies those issues that people can actually be, be more relaxed about them. But the problem is, is that we've recently been reminded that those issues never went away. In fact, they seem to come back and be incredibly intense. And so at this point, we've got I think no other choice but to just try and keep walking on the right side of the line. Does it, did any of that make sense? Yeah. Just mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, you need I mean, to... it, it's weird because I remember, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. I still haven't watched, I didn't watch it. I haven't watched it again. It's been a long time, but, uh, I, it, back in the day when I saw it, I didn't, you know, I never really, picked up on any of this i mean kind of as a kid it was this like it was kind of this funny movie and i remember more after the movie came out with the success that was i remember not liking was how it was obviously they were just milking it and and after john belushi died how they kind of you know they kept it tried to keep it going like with different people wasn't it like john Goodman was in it for a while. And Jim you know, Belushi. Jim Belushi, yeah. All that stuff was horrible. I remember just thinking this is stupid and really uh, just uh, exploiting it, but not 
not for, yeah, not the black culture exactly. I, I don't remember thinking about it that way, but just is like, this is just exploiting the success of the movie and it's, they're just pushing it. And, and it all seemed kind of false by that time. Like, you know, I'm sure, you know, the, obviously they were really big blues fans, but by the time after the movie when it, yeah, it just kept that whole Blues Brothers thing kept going. And there are all these tie-ins in Chicago, especially when people, I don't know, there's like other people doing stuff from the movie or playing the characters or tie-ins with advertising or restaurants or whatever. I don't know. But that was all seemed horrific, not horrific, but just like really distasteful or just was, I just remember as a teenager thinking this is really stupid and uh, didn't seem true to the music in a way, or it's, it's like reggae music. It's the whole thing with, yeah, like college kids, you know, white kids. And it was that whole thing. It It's great that it, the movie brought back or brought this music to other people who maybe wouldn't have listened to it, but it's just, kept going after the movie, all these other incarnations of the characters and things were really cheap. Seemed, I remember that kind of bothering me. Yeah. And it all kind of follows the same pattern, right? It's, it's, if you think about the blues, you could say, oh, this is, you know, where the blues lost, you know, their, it's folk relevancy, right? It became this mainstream cultural thing, right? Mm -hmm. You can say the same thing about disco, right? (laughs) With, with Saturday Night Fever, or, uh, you know, I was thinking about hip hop and I would say, you know, you'd say Vanilla Ice, right? But, or you'd say Hamilton or something like that. And it's like, yeah, at some point these things become just universal popular culture and no longer become representative of the original group that it represented. And, and, and that folk, it, it, it goes from being a folk music to being a uh, commercial music and and being exploited and and that's just the that's just the regular cycle this is not to get too too artsy but the situation is talked about that is the spectacle just they they gave up because they were constantly trying to fight the spectacle which was just that huge cultural momentum that monster by undermining it but then they realized that even their process of undermining it would get absorbed by this giant thing so so a lot of a lot of punk rock symbolism is kind of can be drawn directly to situationist artwork and everything like that. So that's another example of where it just kind of slowly gets co-opted. But the overwhelming idea is is that they kind of gave up because they realized that this thing is so powerful, this cultural momentum, the spectacle, they called it, just absorbs everything, even radical um, counter you know, sort of uh, attacks on it. At some point, you do something crazy to attack it, right? And then slowly that system absorbs it and makes it into something cool, right? So rebellion becomes um, a commodity also. The power people wind up co-opting and exploiting. That's what happens. Yeah, shouldn't the Stones and Zeppelin sort of started a pension fund for blues artists? Oh, don't even... And then funneled 1% of all their revenue to that fund, and they probably could have covered every blues artist. At least the Rolling Stones would credit the bands they were covering, right? Whereas Led Zeppelin were just evil. It's kind of like, I think when, isn't that what the Carter family did, you know, with country music, the way they they 
they just started collecting the songs, EP card or whatever, and, and publishing them under their own name. But there were these songs that everybody knew and they were just collecting them. And yeah. they changed the lyrics maybe. make them, They did make them a little bit more their own, but they're basically yeah, folk songs and traditional songs. And they just, they were the first ones to put their names on them, a lot of them. Yeah, I mean they're 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 important, but they're also the equivalent of patent trolls, which is they just went and they they kind of used the system to take ownership of stuff that wasn't owned by anyone before, and they they were smart enough. AC Carter was smart enough to know, oh wait a minute, I can make, I can I can copyright all these songs and make all the money off of them, whereas you know, whereas before yeah. you couldn't. There's there's a deeper cultural issue, which is that um, people of color and women have been uh, on the short end of the stick, have been losers <laughs> in, in this exchange for centuries. So that's the problem. It's like, it doesn't matter. It kind of doesn't matter if Blues Brothers is good or bad. It, what matters is, is what are we going to do to make sure that, oh, wait a minute, you know, th- th- how do you get these, these voices heard when they need to be heard and not when some white savior comes by 20 or 30 years later to... to you know, put focus on them, right? And and to give them a little bit of handout, but how can can these artists be empowered? So Well, it's a great point. And I think that, you know, there's a lot there's hopefully a lot being done now that will carry through to change that. We'll see. My son pointed out that there was a common body type for comic duos. <laughs> <laughs> Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Garland and David Spade and Farley, Belushi and Aykroyd. Yeah. It sort of still holds true. Yeah, it's just the uh, contrast, whatever. Yeah, and their characters. Like she, they were talking about the, the they're, it's like a straight man and the, the uh, wisecracking guy. It's kind of all that same thing. I thought the nun scene was hilarious. My son enjoyed that one as well. I once had a conversation with a guy who was Catholic from Kansas City. He said that the nuns didn't beat kids in Kansas City, whereas I grew up and went to Catholic school, and, you know, the nuns beat me, you know, a weekly. It was, I mean, brutally beat me. I remember, I now look back and remember a nun gave me a concussion once. Wow. Because I was like, because I blacked out and then came back too after she threw me backwards into a cinder block wall, hit the back of my head. And then I kind of came to after a minute or so. <laughs> and she was pissed that I didn't come too fast enough. But um, that I wonder if that's a Chicago thing. Chicago <laughs> nuns were more brutal than Kansas City nuns. So I, I, don't, I don't I noticed, um, I asked this question during the lecture yesterday. The do you have a Miss Piggy? So the guy was holding up a Grover right. asking if they had a Miss Piggy. Which you would think, well, why do you hold up a Sesame Street character asking if you yeah. have a Muppet show character? But both of those characters are voiced by Frank Oz, who is actually one of the first characters in Blues Brothers. Yeah. I yeah, never... that was definitely... You're, yeah, it was obviously You think that was an odd to oh, Oz? Oh, yeah, it had to be, right? Yeah. Exactly. Like, why... Yeah, why choose those characters? Or yeah, the other thing I noticed to your point, Jim, about how Hollywood now can't stop squeezing every penny out of its properties. 
you couldn't get away with that in a film today. You couldn't put up a Sesame Street yeah, character and reference a right, Muppet Show character. Those are both they Disney properties. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he. I mean, whereas I don't think anybody had to clear any of that stuff, right? When they made that movie, they probably didn't care. Yeah. They probably just did it. Yeah. I remember the E.T. being the first example of like sort of direct reaching out to companies for product placement because originally it was supposed to be M&M's, right? And mm-hmm. M&M Mars said no. And that's how Reese's got right. into E.T. I mean, there was like an, that was one of the earliest examples of making a overture where it was like kind of like, do you, you know, we, <laughs> I don't think there was any money exchanged yet, but it was definitely like there was some, you know, direct communication where it was like, oh, okay, we're going to use this. Can we use your product to you? Yeah. Do you want to tie in the marketing and everything like that? Those early ideas of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think E.T. saying Reese's Pieces <laughs> just sounds better <laughs> than M&M. <laughs> right, right. So it actually all worked out. I, uh, I had a question about the poster. Looking at the poster last night, I just, it, I thought it was very striking because it had sort of a dark tone to it. And I love the fonts and I love the font in the box underneath the actors' names. I, I'd love to know who designed it. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a classic example of the minimalist sort of era of title design. I think it reflects the, like the title design. So there was that French New Wave-influenced reaction to titles. So you had the you know, Saul Bass kind of titles that were very Hollywood. And then in the 60s, the French New Wave films, they had very basic titles. And then that influenced the newer filmmakers. And so there was a huge era in the, well, late 60s, you could say like Easy Rider, like the, those title sequences all of a sudden became just text. It wasn't really about it being a sort of standalone work of art. And so when I look at the poster, it's, it's got elements of that. It's pretty, pretty minimal. The typeface, I can't quite suss out what it is, but it looks almost Times New Romany. So it's, it's very, um, the type treatment is pretty minimal. But it also looks like advertising, that kind of era of advertising too, where it has, they'll, they'll never get caught. They're on a mission from God and that huge amount of kind of white space around the tagline. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about the photo. So the, the photo that they, or if it's a collage, right, it may not be the actual, they may not have set up that photo with the, what is it, girders in the background? Yeah. Or is it a stage? A bridge. Yeah, one of those. those and then probably the still, police yeah. car, and then the two of them standing in front. It's, it's kind of a comp of three different photos. Mm-hmm. But even in that respect, it's, it's well constructed. So it's more about the photo than it is about the text. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really look like a comedy film, you know? <laughs> That's what's interesting about it. That's what I liked about this, this talk, is it really distilled how weird of a film it is. You know, talking about different types of musicals, where some musicals are, you know, people perform music in them, right? But they're not singing narrative or anything like that. But this has both. It has musical production right. numbers that are kind of, you know, Aretha Franklin in the uh, talking to her uh, her husband, right? You know, that's that's within the plot of the movie. But then there are other parts. Yeah, Ray Charles, right? His, his section. But then there are other parts where it's just live performances. And so it's such a weird... And then, yeah, the comedy parts, it's such a mishmash of stuff. You look at this film, you think you need to look at it from the perspective of people completely out of their minds on coke, right? And so what 
how did that influence their choices? You know, just that idea that it, it started out as a 325-page script, right? <laughs> that I think just in and of itself, right, that someone could write a script that big, right? Yeah. Well, and, and, and she showed a picture of cocaine with a penny next to it. I was trying to understand what you do with the penny in cocaine. Do you uh, guys know? I, I know they, what you do with the credit card in cocaine. I know what you right. do with the dollar bill in cocaine. But what is the penny for? I didn't scale. <laughs> I didn't see that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, I know. So what's the end result? That Blues Brothers is probably something that shouldn't be enjoyed <laughs> or <laughs> should be enjoyed with an academic discussion. Jim, you go first. <laughs> Uh, All right. I, How about should this film be lost? No, it's no, of course not. It, it's yeah. I mean, well, because oh, it's hard. Yeah. Being, as a kid, it's like it's so easy to look. I didn't, you know, it was just a funny movie after seeing it again or parts of it. Like I said, I haven't seen it, <laughs> the whole thing again. But I don't know. It, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, what if it's viewed in some kind of context, you know, you, yeah, you can't just throw things away. I don't think, I mean, it has plenty of merit on its own and of its time. And it has lots of positive elements that we talked about. And as long as people recognize that it's problematic or that the discussion comes up, that it's not just this funny movie, there's a lot going on. And the fact that you guys read it that way, where it's like, oh, these, you know, when you watch it, these guys are fish out of water. It do, it's kind of funny there. It doesn't make sense. It is, you know, if people come away with that and, and the fact that John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, I truly believe, you know, they, <laughs> their heart was in the right place. Mm -hmm. It, it might've been, it was speaking from a place of white privilege, but I think we can, yeah, I think a modern audience can look at it and go, oh no, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say that the best blues singer in the world is John Belushi after watching this. No one's going to say that, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And so... If it leads people to delve more deeply into uh, this important American art form, mm -hmm. I, I guess it's good. But if it's their only exposure to the blues and going to the House of Blues and watching yeah. Dan Aykroyd in, and John Goodman sing uh, Sitting at the Dock of the Bay or whatever, I, I, just as a musician, I would be upset, <laughs> right? Yeah. Sure. But I was I was also upset when somebody said to me, you know what's a great movie? Uncle Buck. You know? It's like at some point you become so deeply involved in an art form that um, you can't accept other people's superficial interest in what you view as important. I don't know. I think there's a I think there's a place for people who just there are people who enjoy just the, the lighter side of things. And I actually, for somebody who does enjoy the art films, I do sometimes just need to watch a roller coaster ride. Sure. Well, that's why Sullivan's Travels is such a great movie because, you know, that, that whole idea of a guy who's trying to do something serious and then he realizes the superficial comedy stuff he does is actually providing real joy for people. And then in the process, the film itself becomes gives a message, you know, through that, that is, you know, kind of like, oh, the power of, of cinema and how that power of escape, it's, there's, there's a place for both, right? And if you can figure it out, that's what's, that's why I got to watch Sullivan's Travels again, but the, just talking about it, I'm realizing, oh, wow, he did an amazing 
trick there where it was like he made a he made that kind of Capra level of sort of social commentary while you know making it a comedy should this film be rewound Jim will you watch Blues Brothers again uh, yeah probably because I haven't seen it in years <laughs> and after because I never really thought about it that much I mean I sort of did about all the stuff we've been talking about and yeah I've got to I definitely have to see it again just to just so that yeah I'm reminded of it that like because all I remember are the funny parts and just the whole concept of it this the whole neo minstrels thing we were talking about is I never thought about obviously as a kid and uh, I didn't think of it as as an adult until I heard it last night and then I was like boy that's a pretty good point yeah yeah I mean I yeah I definitely didn't think that because it was a comedy and it's like we all the things we said it's like oh they're kind of it's kind of a weird cartoonish movie and it's just a strange situation it's not reality and they're these these weird characters so but uh, yeah i'll definitely watch it again rick oh yeah definitely and i'm gonna try to get my family to watch it as a family movie something that we can all watch even though it's it's somewhat problematic you know it's exciting and I, i keep forgetting to get a photo of this because now i'm not traveling but before um what's really interesting is if you drive up um, from here up along Route 66 through Joliet to Chicago. I didn't even realize this, but the town next to Joliet is called Elwood, Illinois. Oh, right. There's a, streets, there's a sign that has an arrow that says Joliet one direction and Elwood the other. <laughs> and I keep meaning to get a photo of that sign, but it's, you know, it's a pretty, pretty fast What came first? Road. I, I don't, oh, oh, do you think, oh, no, I, I, I think the joke is, yeah. is that, it's got to be that Elwood's an older town. I'm assuming, maybe not, but I, I think so. I think is that's there the a whole Jake, joke. Illinois? <laughs> no, but there is so. there is a, a Romeo, you know, Romeoville. That's all convoluted. That's it's definitely Romeo and Juliet. It's really confusing. But they they were the original towns. Romeo, oh yeah. Well, there's you know Romeoville Road and Romeo. There is a town called Romeo that's kind of disappeared, but. They were named after Romeo and Juliet, and then Juliet got renamed to Juliet after the explorer to kind of promote the explorer. I think some, I don't know if it was the mayor or someone, local politician, I think, somehow was involved in renaming it to Juliet to promote just the history of the explorer. So... It's confusing. I'm not even sure if I've got that right, but it's definitely, I think originally it was Romeo, the towns were just Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I'll take my grandson to see it. And then hopefully, uh, you know, at that point, there will be no race. That's my my (laughs) hope for the human race is that we all get so mixed that, I mean, that's the thing I, I think my son may be a little nonchalant about is his aunt and his uh, cousin, they're black, right? Like our family is a mix of, you know, my cousins were Jewish and we were Italian Catholics and, and, um, I, I, maybe my utopian hope is that at some point we all just get so mixed that, you know, we don't draw lines anymore, but we'll see. And that reminds me of the PBS version of Lathe of Heaven where the, the, it's basically a guy who whose dreams change the real world, and then his therapist starts manipulating his dreams to 
make the world a better place. And he does that at some point. He tries to eliminate race and then everyone's gray, but then there's some horrible thing that happens anyways. It's really depressing. But well, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I, I think, yeah, so, so yeah, just time and togetherness and diversity is, is going to work itself out. But, but then <laughs> the question is, is what, how, how are we going to divide ourselves and exclude people after that's not the way to do it, right? That's that's the depressing part. Well, I don't think we'll, we will because there'd just be so few of us. I mean, after this thing wipes out 80% of the population with long-term effects of either the vaccine or the disease, the 20% that's left will just build a society where we all just stay indoors and virtually enjoy one another's company. And we won't see what colors. We will all be purple, you know, in in, in our, our, it'll be our avatars at that point. We'll all look like Sonic the Hedgehog. Is that and because of some kind of lack of oxygen or something that makes us all purpley? <laughs> it's really worrisome, Chris. Now you got me worried. Why am I going to be purple? Ooh, some kind of bruising, like our blood won't be able to clot, so we'll just be purpley and bruised. You keep all the trying time. to make it practical, Rick. I'm telling you that computers are these amazing things that can just transform us into whatever we want to be. <laughs> you should look into computers. Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it.